0: All right, hey, while the kiddos are making their way back to you, and they're staying with you today, if that's news to you, I'm sorry, but it's going to be fun. (laughs) Now, we're glad to have our kiddos family Sunday, and um, man, we just, we're glad to be a church that has a bunch of kids, amen? I know uh, my old, old pastor used to say, there's a baby crying in church, just praise God that there's a baby in church, like this is good news. And so, we're glad to have a church full of young families, and they will be, hanging out with us. So kids, we're glad you're here with us today, and uh, we're glad you were in big church with us the whole time. Um, I've, I've loved the last four weeks having the kiddos come on stage and, and reading a story, and, and, um, and each week I, I sort of talked about like we're doing that on purpose to, for lots of reasons, but one of them is actually to try to model what family discipleship could look like in your home. And so for many of us, you know, we have kids, and we know we're supposed to do something to teach them about God, but we don't always know how, and then we feel like our kids don't know how to sit still, right, and behave, and so it's a challenge. And so we just want to model that for you. And I just want to point out, like, man, it got the kids got progressively better at that, didn't they? Like, they they the first week was kind of crazy; they didn't know what to expect, and then each week it, it got you know better and better, and the, so. I think the same can be true for your home as you uh, just do something, right? Sit down, gather around God's word in some capacity, have low expectations of how the kids are going to act, but have big expectations for how the, the word of God is going to impact their little hearts. And, uh, and I think you can do that. And then, like I said, you can play a worship song on YouTube. And, and so even in these last few days before Easter, I would encourage you just to gather your family and center their attention around God's word and, um, and, and teach them to worship. Right? You don't have to be great at it. It doesn't have to go perfect. It won't go perfect. Uh, and that's okay. Um, but do something. So um, while you guys are turning to 2 Samuel, I actually um, want to make a couple of announcements. Um, so first of all, we, we do celebrate Advent, and we sort of extend the, the celebration of Christmas for a whole month here at The Journey. And um, and today's the last Sunday of Advent, but all that culminates on our Christmas Eve service. And so we want to invite you um, in just a couple of days to come back here. Um, bring your families. We know there's a lot going on on Christmas Eve. We know lots of you are having dinner. We just want to invite you to bring everybody you can. Come in your cooking clothes, come in your pajamas, whatever you need to do. We want to invite you to come to 4 o'clock Christmas Eve service uh, because we really want to do all that we can to center our hearts around Jesus this holiday season. And, uh, man, that's just one of the the, the highlights for me is just gathering our family. It's, it's, a, it's a different, it's just it's an intimate, candlelit service where we're going to just... Focus our hearts on Jesus. It'll be brief. we will be about 45 minutes, but we want to invite you and your family to come. So 4 o'clock, right back here uh, in just a couple of days, we want to invite you, everybody. And if you have more family coming in or friends that don't have a church home, they're invited too. We would love for all of them to come and worship with us. Um, and then secondly, if you are visiting with us, um, this would be the time in most churches where oftentimes an offering plate would be passed. And um, we won't be doing that this morning here at The Journey. Instead, uh, most of our giving, most of our folks give digitally. Um, and so we want to invite you, though, to consider uh, how you're worshiping God with your money, okay? The church is not here for your money. God is not out for your money. God's out for your heart, and so we always want to just draw attention to the fact that God commands us to give as an act of worship, right? Because he wants our heart, he says, I want you to make sure you're trusting in me primarily, and so during this season of giving, the season of uh, generosity and all of the chaos, we we don't want to forget to to be generous and, and really to offer a Uh, a a sacrifice out of our own um, you know, finances to worship God. And so if you um, came this morning prepared to do that and or wanting to do that, um, we do have boxes by each exit. You can drop a physical gift in there. You can really do that anytime through the service or you can do that as you leave if you want to do that. Or there's plenty of ways to give digitally um, with your credit card, debit card, uh, safe, secure, and easy. Those are on the screen. And if you need help with any of that, there'll be some folks in the lobby be glad to help you with that anytime during the service, but especially afterwards. So we want to invite you to worship through giving as well. And again, if you're new with us, don't feel like the church is all, like, we're not here for your money. We're glad you're here. This is a gift to you, but this is a way that we worship. And so, all right, turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're going to be using the, the church Bibles, I think it's on page 259 um, there. And we're going to look at one of the final um, big new Te- or Old Testament covenants. We've been walking through the, the covenants um, that God made throughout the Old Testament and moving toward Jesus Uh, Culminating all of those covenants together in himself. We're going to look at that uh, when we gather on Tuesday. um, That all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus, right? That's what we're going to be talking about when we gather together at Christmas Eve and and looking at how all these things culminate and. Climax on the person and work of Jesus, and so that's why it's a big deal that Jesus came and was born of a virgin in the way that He was. I know that for for many of you guys, like we're used to celebrating uh, Christmas, right? No matter what your background is in church and how devoted you and your family have been, like you're sort of used to this holiday if you grew up in America. It's just a thing that we do, and so uh, you, you probably at least know the story, uh, and I think for me a lot of times it was difficult for me to transfer the story of the baby being born in the manger uh, to, to sort of the bigger idea of, of why that mattered for my life, right? Like it was easier to sort of fast forward into the later things that Jesus did whenever he was healing people and teaching things, and even in later in the New Testament, things that are true about the church and things like that, but it was more difficult for me maybe to, to sort of go, okay, that's a good story right and and the songs i get them but like what does that mean for me like what do i do with that how does that lead me to worship how does that change my life now and and really what we've been doing in the last few weeks is looking at the covenants of god because all of them build up as i said to this moment when jesus arrives so the covenants are simply promises of God, or as John Piper, um, a pastor that I love to read and listen to, describes it, it's, a covenant is really God showing up and, and writing his own job description and then signing it himself, right? So it's him showing up saying, this is what you can expect of me, this is who I am and what I'll do and who I'll be, and and he signs it himself, and so he, he makes f- five major covenants and, and the final one being the new covenant, and we've looked at three of them, so Noah, right, and then Abraham and then Moses, he makes a covenant with with each of them. And then today we're going to look at David. And it is those promises of God that really uh, allow us to see the fullness of what is happening when the Christ child arrives in the manner in which he arrives. And so uh, let's look at the story. Uh, from David in particular, uh, this week, and the covenant that God makes with him is, is, a, is, is not something different it 's not a whole new thing from what he 's done with Abraham or noah and abraham it 's a culmination it 's sort of a regathering and a refocusing of those same promises and so let 's look at second uh, Samuel chapter seven, and we 're going to walk through this story together and um, and try to make some sense and apply it for our life so verse one it says "Now when the king lived." In his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. And so, if you know the story of God's people, God rescues them out of Egypt as we looked at last week, and, and makes this covenant with uh, Moses and the people at Sinai, saying, this is, like, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Here's how you should live. If you do this, things are going to go really well for you. If you don't do that, I'll have to punish you. Things won't go well for you, but I'm still going to be your God. And so much of that has happened. Generations have passed, and they are now in the promised land. And Um, But as the story said earlier, they wanted a king. First one didn't go so well, but God said, okay, I'm going to choose this unlikely candidate, this unlikely king named David because of his heart. Later, the Bible will describe David as a man after God's own heart. We know that he wrote many of the psalms that, that fill up our scripture, and really he becomes this, this centralized figure that that the rest of the prophets and the psalms look look back to and, and talk about the coming of the Christ Messiah. It's always in this context of King David, and so he becomes this uh, centralized figure in the story of what God is doing and the reason. And, and so David comes in, and one of the first things we know about him after, like other than him being anointed king, is he strolls up. Uh, to where his brothers are fighting a battle, right? And all the, the army of, of Israel is, is shaken in their boots. They're terrified because of one guy named what? Goliath. Kids, you with me? You know this story? Right? And everybody's afraid to fight Goliath because nobody's ever successfully done so. Right? And he's a giant of a man, and no one has, has, a, has a chance. But David strolls up and says, oh, I got this. And they're like, dude, you're a shepherd boy. Just go back home. And he's like, no, my God will take care of this. And so David slays the giant in this incredible fashion, um, and then he later becomes king, and he becomes a king who is conquering. He becomes the king who leads Israel into the, the 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 fullness of the promised land as he does away with the enemies. The the greatest enemy that Israel had was the Philistines. They were constantly attacking and, and coming against, and David defeats them. David gives them secure borders. David gives them and ushers in the promise. Uh, in the, fullness of what God had for them in the promised land, David allows that to happen. And so in this season, it says David is, is living in his house. So they've moved into the promised land. They've started to build. And David has a, himself a nice house. He's got a palace. It's made of cedar wood. It's, it's really, really nice. And as he's sitting there, right, in this moment, as enemies are conquered. Things are good. He begins to think to himself. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet. So Nathan's a spiritual provi- uh, advisor, the one who who speaks on behalf of God, God would speak to Nathan. Nathan would speak to David and to the people. And so David's talking to, to Nathan. He says, Hey, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, which was where the, the presence of God dwelt, they carried it around. Some of you know this part of the story. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. So he's presenting this problem. He says, Man, I'm sitting in this really, really nice crib, but there's God living out there in the tent, in the ark, and, and Nathan sees where he's going. He says, Hey, man, God's with you. God's blessed what you've done. Go do what's in your heart. But then that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So Nathan says, I thought that sounds like a good idea, man. Go ahead. But then God shows up, speaks to Nathan, and says, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. And this is what, this is God's reply. So essentially, God said, or David says, I want to build you a house, Lord. I want to build, like, I got this nice house. Things are going well. I want to build a, a, a palace. I want to build a, a temple, a, a house for you and, and the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in. Why should I sit in this really nice place and you should dwell in a tent? And so he says, I'm going to build you a house. And this is God's reply. And I want you to hear the tone here. God says, would, would you build, build me a house to dwell in? He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought to the people of Israel from Egypt and to this day. But, I ha- but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling place. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built a house for me of cedar? So what he's saying is, hey, in all these years when I've been doing this work, when I've been uh, working on behalf of the people of Israel, when I've been writing this story, have I ever looked at one of the leaders that I put in place? They were judges before they were kings. Has I ever looked at any of them and go, hey, hey, what about me, man? Can you go build me a house? God says, no, 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 I've never done that. Like, I've been moving and mobile and, and doing my thing, and I'm and quite, like, it's not like an oversight that I've been longing, really hope, man, I'm just glad you finally asked. I really, really am been wanting, you know, a lazy boy recliner to, to chill in, you know, this whole box thing is getting kind of crowded, right? No, 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 God's like, no, I, I never asked for that, and I'm not asking for it now. Verse eight, now therefore, you shall say to my servant David, this is God talking to Nathan, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, He's like, you're going to sort of be corrective with David a bit. He says, not even corrective, just reminding. I want you to picture David is is probably feeling pretty accomplished at this point, as he should. He's done a lot. God's done a lot through him, is the way you really should put it, right? And so he's he's ushered in this this time of peace, like things are. are and so I think he's like, man, mission accomplished. Like, let's let's enjoy this time of of peace and rule, and and so God's gonna. Sort of remind him of what he's been doing, what his purpose and all this is. So he says, I took you, this is God talking to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. And the name of the great ones, or like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. So here, he's going to see in, in a moment, we're going to see that God's going to say, no, no, no. Hey, David, um, let's not be talking about what you can do and what you have. Like, don't forget, I brought you out of the pasture where you were hanging out with sheep. I, I brought you out, right? I'm the one that sent Samuel to anoint you. I'm the one that did that. I'm the one that has, has helped you conquer your enemies. That That's all been me that puts you in this place of ruling over my pasture. So so just remember, I I have done these things. This has been my purpose. This has not been your goodness and your, like, just so you know, like when you read the story of David and Goliath, the point of that story is not that you can conquer your giants, right? That's been hijacked by too many people and taught so wrongly that if you just face down your giant, like, that's not the point. Yes, God's gonna be with you and there's some implications with with that. but, But the big idea is that that God is is pointing us ahead to the day when Jesus is going to come and he'll be the greater David who will conquer our enemy, right? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But but, but God's sort of reminding David of the same thing. It's like, hey, man, this is not about what you've accomplished. Would you build me a house, he says? No, no, no. Remember, David, I've done this for you, and I did this for you, and I brought you to this place. But God's not mad at him. God loves his heart. He says, no, 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 David, you're not going to build me a house. As a matter of fact, I'm going to build you one. I'm going to build you a house. But it's not a, it's not a physical house. Instead, it's a, it's a dynasty. It's a, it's a, a kingdom, a, um, an everlasting place on the throne. And so we see that God's going to flip that and say, no, no, I'm going to build you a house instead. So let's move on. In, in verse 10, he says, this is what I'm going to do for the people. I'm going to appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I, I will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place. So they're going to have a place of their own, not you know wondering if enemies are going to come in. No more to be disturbed by violent men that shall afflict them no more. As they formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, somebody's been attacking them. That's going to go away. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that, that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a nice way of saying die. Thinking maybe we should adopt that. What do you think? Like so-and-so, well, he went to lie down with his fathers. That's weird, but it's nicer, right? So, so he's saying, hey, David, whenever you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. No, notice even the language that he shall. So he's saying, David, here's what I'm going to do for you. Instead of you just building me a house, I'm going to build you a house Meaning, I'm going to build you a dynasty. And when you die, your rule, your influence, your name is not going to die with you. As he's going to point back what happened to Saul here in just a moment. Uh, instead, he's going to say, no, no, no. It's going, to, it's going to carry on. And and your son, he will build me, a, he'll he'll build me a house, but not for me to live in. He says, a house for my name. Right, The temple, as we'll talk about later, is not about, like, God doesn't need a place to dwell. He's, he's ever-present. He's everywhere. Like, he, he's, you know, he manifests himself in certain places, but it's, it's not, like, God's not needing a, some shelter, right? He doesn't need shelter, right? He's saying, no, he will allow Solomon to build the temple, a place for my name, but not for, for him to dwell. And I will establish his throne, and the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse fourteen: I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. My, but my but, so he says, when he messes up, when your son that's on the throne and the ones that come after him, when they mess up, I'll discipline him. I'll you know I'm going to bring. I'm going to let the consequences come. I'm going to discipline him like a, like a, like a good father. Hebrews says, like any good father disciplines a son that he loves. If, if, a, if you're here and, and, and you're wondering whether you should discipline your kids, it, the Bible says it's really unloving if you don't, right? Because if you actually love your kid, you want them to learn to submit their will. You want them to learn to, to you know, be a functional adult. And somebody's going to make them learn that lesson. It might as well be you when they're little instead of the police when they're older, right? And so, sorry, that was an aside. But, but God says, he'll be to me a son and I will discipline him, right? And, but, but, here's the good news. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. That's God's hesed love in the original language. It's not going away. It doesn't matter. It's, it's unconditional. It says it's not going to go away it will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. So Saul was the king that the, that the, you know, the Jesus Storybook Bible referenced earlier. The first king of Israel was named Saul. And that dude let the, you know, the office go to his head. He got really prideful. He forgot about God. He, he started dismissing God's laws and God's rules. And it, the Lord took the kingdom away from him. And when Saul died, Saul's rule ended, period. It was over. God took his, his, his you know, anointing off of him and gave it to David. But what God's saying here is, I'm not going to do that with you, David. When you die, your rule is going to continue. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is eternal language. This is non-stopping language that God is using here. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, David or Nathan spoke to David. All right. So what's going on here? God is making his covenant with David. So this is the culmination of what God has been doing. From, from the time, even with the first covenant he made with Noah, he says, I'm not going to destroy the world that way anymore. Instead, I have a different plan. And that looked ahead to the day when Jesus would be the, the one who would absorb the wrath for, for sin from the people. That would be how God would take care of the sin problem. And then he moves on to Abraham and said, I'm going to do something about restoring this earth. It's all gone astray. And I'm going to do it through a particular people. I'm going to use you, Abraham, you childless old man. I'm going to give you a son and, you, and that son's going to have so many kids that the whole world's going to be blessed by one that's going to come down the road, and that's looking ahead to Jesus. And now it's going to move in and, and sort of gather all those covenant that, that promises up and, and refocus them on David. And this is going to be the, the turning point in the scripture when the prophets and the, and the Psalms would all start uh, looking back to this. And this is when the people start looking ahead to a Messiah, to a Christ that would come. This is when it, the, the language of what God was going to do started to have a, a king involved and, and a kingdom is it in this, is in this moment, this covenant that God makes? So it's not different. It's not that God's wadding up the old ones and throwing those away. No, it's a culmination of. He's building on those and refocusing what he promised to Abraham. He's now promising in a, in a more detailed way to happen in David and in David's family in particular and through the throne. And so here's what God says he wants to do. through His promise to David is, is that, hey, I've been doing this work. I have a purpose in this. And what I'm wanting to do is restore what was lost. So you hear the language there. What God is wanting to give to his people, he's wanting to give them a place, right? He's wanting to give them a place of their own, a place of rest where their enemies aren't coming. I want you to hear garden language in this. This is what helps you put all the pieces of the Bible together. If you're just approaching the Bible trying to get some principles out of it, and then you start reading about a dude you know, like David, we can get confused about that, right? Lots of other guys, you're going to be like, oh, well, I don't think I should be like that guy because that guy lost his mind, right? Like you don't want to just hold Samson up as a model of morality. It's not going to go well for you. So you have to have some context for what God is doing. And what God is doing is he's, he's, he's telling the story of what he made things to be and the way they're supposed to be and what we are longing for in our hearts. How they got lost was through our sin and what he's doing to get them back. And so this movement of God, even what he's longing to establish in the people of Israel is a, is a restoration back to Eden. What, he's, uh, what he made and what was good has now been lost through sin. And he's saying, but I'm going to make this people and I'm going to dwell with them. And they're going to have their own place and their borders are going to be secure and they're going to prosper. And they're going to be this witness, this light, like this city set on a hill for the rest of the world to see. God is where you find life. God is where goodness is found. God is where hope and joy can be found in its fullness. So he's doing this, and he's doing this through David. And so he's making this promise, and he's saying, I want to give you a people, and I am going to, the, the, the strife, the toil, the, the, the wondering when the enemy's going to come, all that's going to be put to an end I'm going to establish this kingdom. But he's saying, I don't want it to be temporary. It's not going to be temporary. It's not just about while you're here, David. God's promise is not just as good as God's man in this moment because God's man's going to blow it later in the story and his sons are certainly going to blow it even more. So his promise is not just as good as his man. His promise is as good as his word. And we're going to see that later things start to go off the rails uh, pretty quickly. David will mess things up, but then even more so Solomon later and as God is disciplining Solomon and, and later in the story, in, in Kings, we see that Solomon has married a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of women in general, and that's a problem, right? You're supposed to have one. But, but more than that, foreign women that are leading his heart away from God and into worship of, foreign, of other gods, of, of pagan idolatry gods. And as God is disciplining Solomon, he says, listen, because you've walked away from my covenant, I'm going to allow the kingdom to crumble, but not fully, not totally. I'm going to preserve a remnant Because I won't go back on my promise to David. I won't forsake my promise to David, and so I'm going to preserve this. Even though you've made a mess out of this, I'm going to keep it going. And that is what we have to see first and foremost, is that the movement of God throughout history and throughout Scripture is about God's purpose, not your own. Right, So when we start thinking about what we want to accomplish in our life and what God has called us to, and then we start looking to God to come alongside and bless our plans, we're going to get real frustrated when he doesn't do what he wants us to do, aren't we? But when we have this perspective switch, okay, no, God is on the throne. He does as he pleases. And what he pleases is for our good. But it doesn't mean it's always going to line up with our requests and our wishes. And so we have to have that in mind and know that, no, no. This is the point of what God's doing. He said, he's reminding David, hey, I brought you out of the pasture. I helped you conquer your enemies. I put you on this throne. And I have a purpose that extends even beyond your life. A purpose for you, David, was not about, like, God never even wanted his people to have a king, right? When they're asking for it, he's going, no, 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 that's not, not going to be good for you. Like, I'm your king. But they insisted, so God, but, but God uses and redeems it in David. It goes badly in Saul, he redeems it in David, but it's never been about the kingship. It's never been about just having this, this time of flourishing for the people of God under David's rule. It's bigger than that, and he says it's going to extend even beyond your lifetime. David, it's, so what he's saying is, I'm going to make sure that there's somebody from your family, David, on the throne Forever. What's happening in this moment is what happens in a lot of the prophetic passages in Scripture. Prophecy is about, you know, God speaking to man, and and a lot of times he's revealing what he's going to do in the future. And so a lot of times in these prophetic uh, passages, uh, the the author will be zooming in and sort of uh, telescoping in on, on, you know, the bigger picture, so where we're going to see events that are both near and off in the distant future happening, in the, or like in the same context of the story. And so what I've what he's saying here is is yes, he's going to uh, you know allow the, the throne of David to continue, and Solomon will indeed build him a house. But more than that, he, he's looking ahead to what he's going to do ultimately in the descendant, as the story said in David's great great right, his his children's 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 children, when it culminates when Jesus Christ arrives. This is why genealogies are important. You ever been reading the Bible, and it'll just skip into, like, two chapters of, like, this guy lived this long, and he had this many kids, this guy lived this long, and he had this many kids, this guy, blah, blah, you know? And you're like, okay, I don't know what, like, if that was your whole devotion that day, you're like, man, I'm empty, I don't know what to do this morning, right? Like, good deal, Methuselah was an old dude, and he had a lot of kids, like, I don't know Man, I'm having a hard time applying that, right? I'll be lucky to get to 78 or whatever the average is anymore. But the reason the Bible contains those things is so we can trace the promises of God from when he made it in the beginning all the way back to Genesis 3 and as he moves through this story and and when we arrive in the Gospels and Matthew starts to recount the the genealogy of Jesus. Why? It's to show that God has fulfilled his promise all the way back to Abraham and then in David. and, And Jesus is indeed the son of David, the root of Jesse, that all of these things that the prophet has, the prophets have said, is going to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things, and that's why those parts of the Bible matter, right? It's connecting the dots and showing you God's faithfulness to His promises. So, what we see here is, is God acknowledging and alluding to the fact that David and his kids are not going to uphold their end of the covenant that the fullness of what God wants to accomplish for his people will never be realized as long as there is a fallible, sinful man on the throne. And as you keep reading in the story, you're going to see disappointment after disappointment. Right? We see Solomon, and things are really, really good, to the point that we see Israel start to accomplish some of her purposes when people are coming from all over the world to see the glory of what God has done in Israel and in the temple. We see that, but then quickly... Solomon's heart is turned away, as I mentioned earlier, and then it just gets worse from there, right? So God keeps one of David's family on the throne, but man, they just keep making a mess of it. And this is is not to make us feel like, okay, God has failed on his promise, Instead, it's to point us to the need for someone greater to step onto that throne. It's to point us ahead and say, okay, this will never be fully realized. The purposes of God, the mission of God will never be fully realized as long as there is just a mere fallible sinful man on the throne. And so what do we do? Do we throw up our arms and give up? No, no, God says, I'm not, I'm not backing away from my covenant with David. And one day there will come one who will take the throne of David and he'll never vacate that thing. He'll live forever. Well, that is eternal language, but that is what's pointing us ahead to Jesus. So the promise of David, or the promise of God to David is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's that's what that's what we're we're celebrating in this moment. And that's that's what we see uh, the prophets have pointed to over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and this is what brings us to the place of 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 Luke 1, 32 and 33, where he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the angel talking to Mary about the baby that she would bear. He says, He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father, David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob. That's Israel. That's God's people. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. So in comes Jesus. Jesus. Right into this moment to take the throne of David, and like David, Jesus—it's not just this taking the throne and then nothing happens. Right, like, like sometimes we're used to it with politicians, like it's like, oh, it's a new year, I mean, this guy's going to change everything, and then, you know, like it. Well, he's he's there or she's there and in that office in that seat, but then the, the, the stuff down line gets clogged up and all sorts of I didn't mean to bring all that up. Everybody's mad now. I'm sorry. But it's not like that, where it's a positional change, but no like administ- like actual change on the ground. It's not like that because Jesus comes in and much like David has been the conqueror, the champion, the warrior king for his people that brought Israel out of the, the, the fear of the Philistines and, and their boundaries being like he champions them, he takes on their greatest enemy and wins those battles and brings them into this place of peace. Jesus also is our warrior king. He is the greater David who steps in to our mess. He steps in to the middle of our fears when our enemy, when we're facing the enemy that, that like 10 out of 10 lose against, namely death, right? That the whole world is under the fear, under the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus steps in. And much like the people who were scared in the Israel, Israelite army, who nobody was, was willing to step forward and fight Goliath because nobody could win. And David steps in and, and slings a stone at that dude. Jesus says, listen, I know that nobody can win. I know that nobody can, can find victory in this life, but I'm going to step in and I'll handle this for you. And Jesus comes and he lives the life that you and I could not live. He faces down Satan. We see this in Luke 4. He faces down Satan in the same way that Adam did in the garden. But instead of giving in and and messing everything up, Jesus resists that. And he wins that battle. And then he goes on ahead to live a perfect life. And then to give his life sacrificially on the cross in the place where you and I deserve to be because of our sin. He lays down his own life. And it is that sacrifice that diffuses the power of evil and and sin over our life. And then he He consummates that thing because on the third day he comes back to life and he earns the victory that only a sinless Savior could earn. And in that, he comes to offer us freedom, to offer us hope, to offer us a kingdom. And then later in the story, we see Jesus ascends into heaven. And where's the Bible said he's going to go? To sit at the the right hand of the Father, right? He's on his throne, and there he will be forever. That's where he is, present day, on his throne, until all his enemies become his footstool. That's present day. Jesus has came and conquered death, and he extends to us that freedom, that victory. And that message is going forward, even today. I, I hope that even this Christmas season, we are compelled to tell our lost friends and family members, where we have found hope, where we have found pardon and amnesty in King Jesus. That the world is broken, that we suffer, be, not because you know, God is ambivalent and you know, just doesn't care, but rather because we have made a mess of things, but God has made a way that he silenced sin and death. He put the rulers and authorities to shame, to open shame when he died on the cross. And to all who would trust in him and turn their life to him, he gives them the same promise, the same covenant that he gave to David. It's beautiful. It's this beautiful culmination. So the promise that God gave to David is fulfilled in Jesus, but then it's fulfilled in Jesus so that he can extend that same covenant to us. It's incredible. I want you to look with me as we wrap up. I want you to look at, at Isaiah chapter 55. I want you to hear the language here. This is well after David. This is prophets looking back at the promise that God gave to David, but also looking ahead to what God is going to do. And he says this. This is the prophet Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirst.'" This is, And I, and I want you to I want you to hear that. I want you to feel that, right? That's a church word, and maybe you're just used to that, but I want you to think about our world. I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about the people you work with and neighbor, um, you know, next to, and and I want you to think about the thirstiness of the world and how continually we believe that this thing will fill us up or that thing will fill us up, and the world is just running after longing that that one day fame or respect or this house or this car or this job or this paycheck, whatever, this person, this relationship would fill us up. That's all thirst, Right? And this is the invitation from God saying, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Later Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is when you realize you have nothing to offer that in that moment you can start to accept and experience the life that Jesus has come to give. Come, you got no money, come buy wine and milk. Without money and without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. Isaiah saying. What God's doing is so much bigger than King David. I'm going to build you a house, he says. I want you, even that, man, I would love to talk more about this. But I'm, I'm just out of time. But like the temple, David's desiring to build his house so that God can live. God's saying, no, no, no. He's been, tab- like, he's been living in this tent. That's a tabernacle. That's sort of this temporary dwelling. Like when Jesus comes, it says that he tabernacled with us. Jesus comes and, and lives amongst us. And the beauty of that, like the reason God's not all caught up on this temple or this house that, for his presence is that he has this bigger plan. Yeah, there'll be a temple later that's really glorious, really good, but people get all caught up on that. And Jesus comes in and starts telling them, Hey, I want to tear that thing down. I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And they're like, Dude, it took us 40 years. You're not going to do that. And Jesus, is like, you're missing the point because I'm the temple. And when Jesus allows Himself to absorb our sin and then resurrects with the victory, He extends to us a pardon that washes us, like, washes away all of our guilt and shame. And that... Is not the end of the story. Yes, we're forgiven, but because we're forgiven, we're now indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So we become the temple. You get that? Jesus came. He's not worried about a temple back there with David because he's got his eye on this day when we would become the temple. He's not worried about just that land because he's got his, his, his eye on Revelation whenever the whole world is his people's dwelling place and he's there with him, right? It's his greater purpose. And so it is today, like that's why we can gather in this old pole barn, right? We don't need this beautiful temple, right? I love our building. The inside's beautiful. The outside is a pole barn, right? But the reason it matters is because we are the temple. You probably heard that verse. Grandma probably told you not to get a tattoo because your body's the temple, right? But the bigger idea is that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, You are the temple of God. You are the one. So when we gather together in a place like this, look at the concentration of the presence of God that is gathered here this morning. Isn't that rich? Isn't that good? That's what God is doing. That's what he's accomplishing in the long term. Jesus had to come and be the only one who could fulfill that covenant that he made with David so that he could extend this covenant, this kingdom to all of us, and there would be no end. I want you to listen to how the Bible ends. The last verses in the Bible, in Revelation 22, contain this. It says, Jesus, he says, 22, 16 and 17, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the churches. It's talking about the rest, the, what he just said in Revelation. But listen to this. This is Jesus. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He says, that, that, that Savior, that Messiah, that the people of God have been longing for, that was me. Come to do what David did, and even greater so. And then he says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. Just like Isaiah, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Does that mean it didn't cost anything? No, it means Jesus has paid that cost. That's the invitation of our Jesus. He says, I am the greater David, I am your king, your good king, the conqueror, the one who put your enemies to, to he silence them. Maybe you don't think about your day-to-day struggles being related to sin and death, but man, they are. The reason there's pain in your heart, the reason there's longing. Like, it, it, like it's battling against death. It's knowing that this clock is ticking down. It's knowing you've got to try to get as much out of this life and find fulfillment in this life because the day's coming and you don't know when. Maybe, maybe you get 78 years. Maybe you get a couple more days. Maybe you get a couple more breaths. But this moment's coming and that puts this pressure on us that, that causes all this evil and all this strife and all this angst. And Jesus has come to, to shut that up, to put that to death. To close the mouth of death once and for all and say, Listen, people of God, I have conquered death, and you no longer have to fear it. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Because Jesus Christ is resurrected. The tomb, the manger is full, and we're going to celebrate that. But look ahead to when the tomb is empty. And in that moment, it says to us, I've conquered this victory. I've, I've conquered your enemy and I've given you a kingdom. So come. You're longing, you're thirsty, come. (laughs) As John Piper uh, quoted earlier, the covenants are, are God stating, giving his own job description and then signing it. Beautiful imagery there. And in here, in this moment, God lays out his promises of what he's doing for his people. And then he signs them with his own blood. You realize that that Jesus is the greater David, and He's going to embody these promises. But to 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 seal this covenant that Jesus makes, He signs it with His own blood. That's why we're going to approach the table in just a moment. And it, and it is that is that richness that we are celebrating here. That Jesus makes a covenant, but it's not just. A, You know, we'll see if we can do this. He says, no, 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 I'm going to promise you, I'm going to seal it with my own blood. And so each week we celebrate this meal and and it is Jesus saying, I am the Savior. I am the conquering King. Your enemy is defeated only one one way and that is by me giving my life. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then likewise, he took the cup, the sealing of his covenant, the statement that says, that Jesus is, is going to put his money where, like he's going to put his money where his mouth is. He's not just going to talk about bringing salvation. He gives his own life, and he says, "This is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink." So each week we observe the Lord's supper. We take this meal and we celebrate that Christ has come. That He made a way. that he's the greater David, he's the warrior king, and he fought our battle by giving his own life. May we be stirred this Christmas, and may our response be much like David's in verse 18. After God shares all of this with him, I want you to hear how David responds. I want this to inform our, our response time. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. We're going to come to the Lord's table. All right? invite, there's a table in front of each section. If you're here and you're a Christian, we invite you to come take the Lord's Supper. Don't take it flippantly, but take it celebratory. Right? Take it with joy. You need to hit the altar before you come to the table. You're totally welcome to do that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I understand this is all weird. We invite you to just hang out and keep thinking about what Jesus is saying. But before we do that, I want you to hear David's response in verse 18. After he hears all that God said to to Nathan, Nathan delivers that message. Verse 18, "Then, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He just sat before the Lord. He didn't run to him with a bunch of words or, oh God, I'm so sorry, or God, let me build it. No, no, no. He just sat before the Lord and said, who am I, oh Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? I pray that that be the 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 posture of our own hearts this Christmas season, that he came for sinners like you and me, that he came and gave his own life. So that we could have freedom, so that we could have freedom from death and sin and Satan. Like, why? I don't deserve that. But but it's true. May we set in that, and may we worship this morning uh, in response to that. Who am I, Lord? And the natural reflection of that is going to lead you to walk away from yourself and go, man. Who are you, Jesus? What a great Savior. I know who I am. You're familiar with yourself. You know your sins. You know your mess. Lift your eyes. Who is he? Man, we're an even bigger sinner than we could ever dream, but he's a greater Savior than we could ever imagine. And that's what we're celebrating today. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for this hope. And I pray that, Lord, you would Give us hearts that believe your promise, that that respond out of faith, that give you our life, that just worship this morning. If there are those here who don't know you as Savior, would you you grant them that good gift of faith this morning? Would you save them? Would you allow them to to just step out and say, man, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I believe that Jesus is him? Would you bring them from death to life this morning? For those of us that know you, Lord, would you call us to a place where, where we rejoice in what you've done? May we worship this Christmas season. Have your way in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray.